Welcome to the Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review, where we cover all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Deva Joshi, and today's guest is Professor Robert Pistani, here to talk about the global debt crisis. Professor Robert Pistani is an adjunct associate professor in Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, teaching graduate courses in the international economy, the Chinese economy and international order, and most recently, the geopolitics of energy. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago, where he studied international economics, finance, and computer science. Prior to joining Georgetown, Professor Bastani served in the departments of state, treasury, energy, and defense alongside work in the private sector. Among a variety of positions in the Department of Energy, he was the Director of International Finance, Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary for International Affairs, and Director of Risk Management and Business Outreach for the Loans Program Office. In the early 1990s, he managed the G7 negotiations, the Paris and Houston Presidential Summits, U.S. IMF policy coordination, the management of America's $20 billion foreign currency reserve position, and policy coordination with the Federal Reserve. He was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for International Monetary Affairs, served in the Economics Bureau of the Department of State in the Food for Peace Program, and later the Trade Policy Office. During his six years with the Asian Development Bank, he served as the Director General of Private Sector Finance and helped provide over $24 billion to infrastructure and capital market programs across 22 Asian countries in support of economic development and poverty alleviation. Professor Pistani was a professor of national security and economic policy at the National Defense University and the National Intelligence University on a five-year detail for the Department of Defense. For his service, he was presented with the Joint Meritus Civilian Service Award by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He has been a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations since 1991. Good afternoon, Professor Bastani. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So before we jump into our topic today, I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about your career journey from the University of Chicago to the private sector and the various appointments in the Department of Treasury and Department of Energy. Okay. Um, well, to say that I've had an eclectic career would probably be an understatement. Um, uh, like most people, <clears throat> I've taken a, a rather circuitous path to where I am today. Um, but I started off as, um, uh, as a student of international relations, um, largely because I grew up, um, I spent my teenage years in the Middle East. Um, and as a result of that, I was constantly having to answer questions from my friends about uh, uh, American policy towards the Middle East and Israel. Uh, it was the height of the Cold War, so we were always discussing uh, U.S. and Soviet Union, um, and then Vietnam was um, heating up, and so I was constantly getting questions about Vietnam and why the United States was picking on this little country. Um, and and so I, I, I came back from the Middle East being a foreign policy geek, um, and that was sort of the direction of my, um, my, my uh, career. Um, and then I discovered economics along the way, um, which really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of issues in international relations. Um, and, and much to my surprise, uh, when I asked, uh, when I was getting near graduation uh, from uh, the University of Chicago, I asked uh, 
so so where are most IR people getting jobs? And it turned out that the banks were the biggest hirers of uh, folks with uh, with international backgrounds. Um, so I found myself um, joining the ranks of the international banking community, uh, which uh, certainly drove my career uh, to, to a great extent. So that was a major area of my career. Um, I, I, I did the unusual thing during my banking career, which is I stepped onto the other side of the desk and actually worked for a couple of major multinationals. Um, uh, basically, uh, being on the receiving end of, you know, borrowing and lending money. Um, <clears throat> um, so, so that was an interesting aspect of it. Uh, I became a consultant al along the way for several years. Um, I, I then was offered uh, a position uh, with the U.S. Department of the Treasury uh, as a political appointee under George Herbert Walker Bush. So I served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Monetary Affairs. Uh, probably the best job at that level in the U.S. government. It was an unbelievable experience. Um, and, and that, oddly enough, 10 years after I left it, led to my joining the Asian Development Bank um, in Manila, where I was doing developmental economics, um, which was, again, another fantastic opportunity. Um, I, I got to build a, a, a really nice business there. I was, not, I was leading the private sector arm of the uh, ADB um, and took it from just a, the smallest unit of the, of the institution to the largest um, unit in the institution. Um, when I left that, um, I fully had planned to come back to, uh, to New York. Uh, I was offered two really spectacular jobs in finance. Uh, unfortunately, um, the, my my departure from the ADB coincided perfectly with the Asian with the global financial crisis, the Great Recession of 2008, uh, and all of the financial institutions were laying off massive quantities of people. So the the two great opportunities that I had simply evaporated. Um, and I was looking around for something to do. A friend of mine at Stanford uh, said, uh, "Why don't you come here and teach at Stanford?" Um, and that led to four really interesting years um, at Stanford. Um, uh, my, my children, both of whom live in Washington, um, at that point said, uh, look, uh, you know, we haven't seen you guys uh, in 10 years. You've been off in Manila for, you know, for six years and another four years on the West Coast. Uh, why don't you, uh, you know, you got to come back home again. All right. Uh, I mean, we, we're sprouting grandchildren and they deserve to see their grandparents. Um, and so we moved to Washington no sooner than I got here uh, than I was invited to join the Department of Energy um, and spent uh, eight years at the Department of Energy uh, to date. Um, and um, uh, in, in between that, uh, and I find myself um, taking uh, assignments to teach at the National Defense University, both at the Eisenhower School and at the War College, National War College. Um, and in my spare time, <laughs> as if I had any, um, I found myself teaching at Georgetown as well, which I continue to this day. Well, that's great. Thank you for, for going into that, your background. I'm definitely pro-circuitous path. Um, so I think your background's gonna lend well to the discussion that we're having today. So our discussion today looks at the global debt crisis in general and distressed foreign debt. 
Some background for our listeners. Recently, there are a number of developing countries that have defaulted on the or are on the precipice of defaulting on their external loans. Those vulnerable are countries like El Salvador, Ghana, Egypt, Tunisia, and Pakistan. Argentina and Lebanon defaulted in 2020, and Sri Lanka did in May of this year. So the question is, are there any main themes we can draw from these countries to explain their current predicament? Well, if, if you look um, across the broad sweep of, um, of, of time um, in, in economics, you, you see that um, debt becomes a very uh, popular means of propping up econ uh, economies uh, over time. It, it seems to come in waves. Um, and um, those waves usually end up with a crash. Um, and you would think that people would learn from them not to get too over leveraged as, as the term is, right? Um, unfortunately, it seems like every generation needs to relearn the lessons of the past. Um, so over the, since, well, really um, in, in large part because of the Great Recession of 2008, um, countries basically were all trying very hard to um, stimulate their economies. Um, and the way you stimulate an economy is get people spending, uh, usually the government, uh, both using fiscal policy, that is their spending policies to stimulate the economy, uh, and uh, central banks lower interest rates, to, in, in effect, put more money into the, into the economy. Um, thereby um, creating more money out there for people to spend and that hopefully more often than not gets the economy going. Um, you would have thought that after the recession of 2008, which was largely caused by excessive debt, that we would have learned our lesson. But no, uh, we've kept borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and then COVID comes along and basically puts the lid on virtually every economy in, in, on the planet. Um, and so governments are back at it again, saying, well, we've got to stimulate our economies to get them going again. So we had all these spending programs uh, and the central banks, uh, again, lowering interest rates and we're off to the races again. So the world at this point um, is, is basically looking at just historically unprecedented levels of borrowing uh, around the world. Um, the, the most recent number I've seen is that we're now past $303 trillion in debt on a global basis. Um, from the 2008 financial recession, uh, the Great Recession, uh, we, we learned uh, from two Harvard uh, professors, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff, um, that history teaches us that if debt to, to GDP is in excess of 90%, then there will be pain. In fact, there's usually pain at a lower level, around 60% of, of GDP. Well, if you look at the United States, we're pushing now about 130%. Um, but we're pikers compared to Japan, which is around 260 to 70% of GDP, and the Chinese, which are unbelievably well north of 350% of GDP. Um, now, in, in large part, this has been um, uh, 
painless thus far, largely because in their in, in their efforts to lower or to, to get greater economic activity, the central banks uh, have cut rates to the point where, in fact, it's real interest rates are below zero. So it was almost costless to, to most countries. And if something doesn't cost anything, if something is free, people tend to borrow more of it, um, uh, you know, access more of it. And, and so the pain really hasn't been felt yet, but it's coming. And it's coming largely because um, in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, um, inflation has really kicked up, largely because of energy prices, but a variety of other things related to COVID, uh, supply chains uh, were strained and, and all kinds of issues uh, there. So now we're facing an inflationary period. And how do you co combat inflation? Well, you've cut interest, or you, you raise interest rates. So now for the first time um, uh, we, 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 in, in, in quite a while, we're seeing interest rates going back up again. The central banks around the world have wanted to gradually increase interest rates, but because inflation is taking off pretty quickly, they're raising rates faster than they anticipated. So now all of a sudden, all of that debt that's hanging out there is, um, is now going to have to be uh, financed um, or, you know, sort of uh, the interest rate uh, price tag on that is going up. And so countries now that are really over borrowed are going to start feeling the pain pretty soon. A lot of emerging countries um, that don't have the resiliency of the large of the, you know, the bigger countries, um, they've seen their, inf their, their, their economic activities slow for a whole variety of other reasons. Uh, and now they're in serious pain. So countries like the ones you named, Sri Lanka included, are, are, are finding a lot of problems. Um, and, um, uh, you know, th this, this has the potential of unsettling the whole house of cards. Right. I mean, the 303 trillion debt figure is just an a staggering am an amount. It's hard to imagine. Um, and it kind of leads me to my next question of kind of placing it within, uh, the lens of the United States since we're talking about the failure of a country to pay off its debt, why do you think the United States should be concerned if a developing country cannot meet its foreign debt obligations? Um, because we do have a resilient economy. So besides from the obvious altruistic reasons, why should we be concerned? Um, great question. Uh, but largely it's because all the country's uh, economies are all tied together. What happens in a small country on the other side of the planet you would think would be self-contained, but no, uh, it, it tends to magnify around the world, particularly as the world is so dependent on the US dollar. 90% of the world's transactions uh, go through the US dollar. And so what happens in the smallest of countries ends up, um, we, we end up feeling it one way or another. Um, take for example, in 1997, you had the Asian financial crisis um, uh, little Thailand had a currency crisis, and then all of a sudden it becomes a global thing. Um, and um, so because we're all tied together, apart from the altruistic problems, uh, we have to keep an eye on the smaller countries. 
who are now even more indebted than they were back in 2008. So uh, we, we really have a house of cards here. Right, we're definitely in a, a dire situation. Um, so since we're talking about debt, I would like to briefly mention the role of lenders. Um, why do lenders enter into a financial relationship with an emerging market where there is a higher chance of volatility and non-payment? Well, for the most part, the banking community has kind of backed away from that. Um, There was a period in the 1970s where uh, the the large money center banks, as they're called in the large financial centers, um, were lending quite actively to emerging countries. Um, this, This happened really... Uh, after the first oil shock. In fact, I, I was one of the, I'm probably the last of the petrodollar recyclers. Um, in, uh, in 1974, Saudi Arabia quadrupled the price of oil, and then five years later, it doubled again. And so there, you know, as, as we used to say, um, OPEC did a cachectomy on the West. Um, and so the banks were now you know, the, the, all of these countries didn't know what to do with the, with the money, so they deposited them in the U.S. banks, being a safe harbor. The, the U.S. banks didn't know what to do with them quite, uh, and they said, well, let's lend them back into those countries. That, that sounds like a great idea. And so they lent a lot of money to the emerging countries only to discover that that was a rather poor bet. Uh, the, the, the problem with emerging countries part of the reason why emerging countries don't emerge uh, in large part uh, is because they're so badly managed. Um, and the, the poor management of those companies um, in, uh, causes a lot of, uh, of, of risk uh, to be associated with them. Um, so, when the, so when the banks in the 1970s lent a great deal of, of money to the, uh, to the emerging countries, um, they thought it was safe, but really discovered very quickly uh, it didn't. Uh, the, the motto at the time was, um, well, we can lend to these countries because countries don't go bankrupt. Um, the response uh, over, over a number of years came back, well, yeah, countries may not go bankrupt, but the banks that lend to them do. Um, and, and so we've seen this pattern go on and on and on. And, and so if you look around the world, um, you, can, you can see that uh, a, a lot of countries, emerging countries, are, are, are very badly managed. You managed, you, you spoke of Lebanon, for instance. Uh, uh, Lebanon's economy has collapsed uh, because of poor um, economic policies across the board. Uh, Turkey is finding enormous problems. Uh, Sri Lanka's economy has collapsed, uh, again, because of, of bad management. Um, and so the, for the most part, the international banking community has said, well, we don't want to be doing that very much anymore. Uh, there are lots of non-banking institutions that lend money because they have lower costs than banks do. And so they're willing, have been willing to some degree or the other uh, to lend to, um, to countries via bonds, the bond market. Um, uh, but but um, and 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 for that they charge a really high price. You know, it's um, fear and greed is is you know what drives the financial markets in large part. 
Um, and finally, you know, in, in these emerging countries, the interest rate goes up, up, up in the, in, until they reach, uh, you know, certain lending um, triggers, which says, okay, for that rate, yeah, all right, let me take the risk. Uh, and they'll put money into them. Um, so you, you're, you're seeing a bit of that, but you're also seeing in, in recent years uh, in Asia, well, not really around the world, you're seeing the Chinese uh, basically lending a tremendous amount of money uh, through their so-called Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and even before the Belt and Road Initiative, if you look at uh, their, their uh, development bank and their import-export bank, uh, they are larger than all of the multinationals put together. And the Chinese have been, for geopolitical reasons, lending tremendous amounts of money out there at much higher rates than the development banks uh, do. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of money swirling around, particularly Africa, but also including Latin America and um, uh, Asia um, in, in terms of money being spent out there. So, so they've lent a lot of money out there, which is, is a bit mind-boggling because uh, clearly uh, the, the Chinese are doing this for geopolitical reasons not for economic gain, uh, but nevertheless, they're charging a high rate of interest. They demand a return on those um, and have been very um, tough on countries like Sri Lanka that have defaulted on them um, and um, insisted on repayment or repayment in kind or, or whatever. So um, that is putting a lot of pressure on the emerging countries in large part because China now finds itself in a very difficult position, um, both because it really couldn't afford to be lending this money out, but they were doing it for political reasons. Uh, and now it's substantially added to China's risk. And, you know, we, we, we talked about smaller companies, the danger of smaller countries defaulting. Well, uh, if China's economy uh, has a big hiccup, which there are a lot of signs that it, it can and maybe already is, uh, that could really disrupt the international financial markets. Right. I know that we could probably spend a whole episode just talking about China as a lender in and of itself. Um, I know that there, to your point, there have been claims that Chinese investment saddles developing countries with unsustainable debt and possibly creates a debt trap. Um, what do you think are the national security implications if Chinese leaders hold sway over debt distressed countries? Particularly in Asia, um, the, the, the Chinese have been trying to get around their geopolitical problems uh, associated with energy uh, around the world. Um, and and um, they've been importing lots of oil from uh, largely from the Middle East. Uh, and as a result of that, they're having to build up their naval forces all over um, um, the Indian Ocean and uh, the, the South China Sea. And so they've taken some really strong measures in that regard. Um, they've uh, talked to Sri Lankan government in giving them a 99-year lease. Uh, on the Hambantota uh, harbor that they built, uh, that the, the the Sri Lankans defaulted on, so they now have that. They've built a base in in, in Gwandar, which is supposed to be non-military, but no one quite believes that. 
Um, and so we're beginning to see the, the geopolitical rise of China's naval forces uh, out there um, really sort of for the very first time imposing their uh, global reach into the, the uh, Indian Ocean. Uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan famously said, he, he who controls the Indian Ocean controls Asia. And so you're seeing a political challenge to America's uh, naval dominance of the South China, uh, of both the South China Sea and the Indian Ocean. Um, and we're beginning to not quite clash, but rub up against each other uh, in a way that uh, is, is somewhat worrisome. Great. So I know that we have been mentioning Sri Lanka. Uh, I do want to turn to it specifically uh, as a case study. Uh, the country has over 50 billion in external debt. And as we mentioned earlier, they recently suspended payments on their foreign debt this year. Uh, the deep economic crisis has fueled public protests. And as of this recording, ex-president, and I will note alleged war criminal Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled to Singapore and the prime minister was then elected as president. Now, this country used to be a development success story 10 years ago. Uh, in broad strokes, can you walk us through what happened in Sri Lanka? I know that you mentioned poor management. Is there anything else that kind of brought Sri Lanka to where it is now? It's it's largely bad management. I mean, you're right. Uh, the, the country was doing very, very well. Um, I had the privilege of going there several times when I was at the Asian Development Bank. Um, and so I, I, I know Sri Lanka quite well. Uh, love the country. It's a beautiful place in large. In, 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 the, the beauty of the country is such that uh, one of their principal uh, industries is tourism. Um, well, Rajapaksa is uh, was a sort of case study in what not to do um, with economies, uh, country's economy, um, and uh, he's been in and out of power several times. And it, what he basically did was just a whole series of vanity projects. Um, the, the port in uh, the the Hanbaltata port uh, is, is is a great case study. Uh, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, refused to finance them. They're saying that there was no need for a bank, uh, of a, another port. There were two uh, very good ports um, in, in Colombo, uh, which was right on the shipping lanes. But um, um, Rajapasta came from the same province where Hambotata is now built. So he, it was essentially pork uh, for his hometown and, and, and that region. Uh, so he built that. Uh, along the way, he built an airport in the same area, um, which uh, no one needed, um, it, but, you know, it services like seven people a week, um, and that's about it. Um, in the same province, they built a stadium and a large uh, supermax um, um, cinema complex and, and all kinds of things, all based on the Chinese debt. Um, now, the Chinese... Uh, you know, communists are not known for good risk management and prudent uh, financial management. Um, and so they were happy to lend to them. And all of those, uh, not surprisingly, cratered, um, causing all kinds of problems. Um, but Rajapaksa's um, economic acumen was certainly less than desirable. Uh, so in addition to a huge amount of debt, there was lots of spending, there's lots of corruption. He put his family members in the government and uh, 
it's just it's 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 a case study of what not to do with an economy. Um, so slowly, their their economy began to weaken, um, and um, uh, as as the political problems started rising, people were demonstrating that that cut off their tourism. So all of a sudden, they weren't getting cash inflows. They were still buying a lot from outside. So their balance of payments went to hell. Um, and then inflation went to hell. And uh, to stimulate the economy, they borrowed more money, um, adding to the problems. Uh, then they defaulted on the Chinese who insisted on you know, a, a dominant share of the money coming back to them, uh, you know, debt repayment. Um, and it was just like one thing piled on top of the other until the, you know, financial crisis occurred and the, the economy collapsed. Uh, and finally had to flee the country, uh, uh, to which one can only say good riddance. Uh, but his party is still dominant in the country. There's he, he seems to to rise from political death all you know every you know quite often and um, there's still the possibility that he might come back. Who knows? Um, it's not unheard of. It's definitely the economic affecting the political and vice versa. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, central banks were were sort of uh, were created largely to be independent of governments. Uh, to uh, you know, to to ensure good economic management, uh, but when you've got your cronies and and family members um, in 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 power like that, uh, like you, you saw in Sri Lanka, it's just a recipe for disaster. And um, I'm I'm happy you mentioned the faulty infrastructure investments. I know that in your class we spoke about a similar phenomenon happening in China, um, all kind of leading to the downfall. Uh, of the economy? Uh, that the Chinese have an edifice complex. Um, and, and, and one says that because um, one of the problems you typically see in emerging countries is that their infrastructure is very poor. Um, and so um, outside financiers and, and companies are very reluctant to go there because of the infrastructure problems of, of, of the country. So uh, wisely, the Chinese um, started building up their infrastructure, um, and uh, in the in the beginning, that was very very good because the marginal productivity of each infrastructure project added to the country's prosperity. Um, but you got to know when to stop. Um, um, I, 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 at one point, I had the privilege of spending an hour and a half uh, with uh, the famous economist, uh, Paul Samuelson. Um, and um, Paul Samuelson was talking about a, another economist. And he said, you know, the problem with that, that, that fellow is he doesn't know when to stop. His economic policies make a great deal of sense, but to a limit, okay? He's like a guy who spells banana, B-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A-N-A. You got to know when to stop, right? right. And, and the Chinese have never quite figured this out in, 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 in many ways. Um, so they're now overspending uh, on infrastructure and even to the point where it is actually destroying wealth. And so you have bridges to nowhere, you've got you know, roads to nowhere. Uh, a lot of their infrastructure uh, is, is useless. Um, 
and, and is now being torn down, uh, which is a gross um, uh, waste of money. Um, in, in large part, it's because their financial markets uh, are so badly um, structured and managed um, that, that uh, the average citizen has no place to invest uh, their savings. And so the only place to invest it has been in real estate. And so they've been happy to, to borrow real estate, but you're seeing real estate collapse and markets collapsing there. Uh, the most famous case um, was of course Evergrande and um, Evergrande has now defaulted. Uh, it has gone bankrupt. Uh, and as the, is the want of uh, the Chinese government, uh, they've taken it and they've sold it to another, to, to a state owned uh, entity, which, doesn't have the, exactly the, the you know the, the greatest management itself, and so you know pro problems are piling up in China at a very rapid rate, uh, which makes us all very worried about where China's economy is going. Right. Thank you for that. I think definitely the spending with no return um, is well, the spending with without any economic return is not good for anyone. Yeah, there's a, a friend of mine likes to to uh, to put it succinctly, um, and my friend says, "If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense." That's sweet and to the point. <laughs> so, just to close out Sri Lanka, kind of looking forward, uh, do you see any parallels with the 1997-1998 Asian financial crisis, which kind of spurred contagion? Do you think that? the Sri Lanka default might spur a similar contagion? And how do you see Sri Lanka coming out of this in the long term? Um, there's always the risk of contagion because uh, what it makes, what, what happens is that uh, it makes people become much more cautious. Um, so the lenders to all of these countries suddenly, you know, it, it could be very different parts of the world, but when you see uh, a, a, a problem in one area, it makes the financial community that much risk averse and they start pulling back. So you're right, it, it could very well uh, spread. Um, I think in this case, Sri Lanka is small enough that it might, not, it might be containable, but again, you're seeing lots of problems all over um, the, the, the region. The African countries, a lot of them are having problems. Um, it, and, and certainly Pakistan is having problems um, and, and um, that whole region and all of those economies are, are somewhat tied together. So, you know, when one part of the spider web gets pulled, the whole spider web moves and it's the ramifications uh, can, can come up um, in, in the strangest places. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worrisome. So coming to the final question, uh, what do you see as the biggest economic threat to the national security of the United States? Oh, I, I think at this point, um, it's, it's our debt levels. Um, we've been saying this for a number of years now, but we're borrowing more and more. Um, our, fortunately, our economy is, is probably the most resilient economy in the world. But we're really sort of pushing the limits on that, um, you know, because of the because of COVID um, and, um, you know, in our determination to make the, you know, get the economy going. Uh, we've borrowed a lot of money. We've just added more and more uh, fuel to that fire. 
Um, and, um, and now interest rates are rising, uh, deliberate policy to try to slow, you know, uh, inflation down. Um, and so the, the cost of, of, of carrying that debt is going to get higher and higher. Um, we, we've really been living well beyond our means here. It's, it's like a credit card, you know, you, at, at some point you're going to have to pay it back. Um, and there's, there's absolutely no sign that we're yet ready to 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 take on um, you know the austerity required uh, to, um, um, to 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 pay back that debt um, and and of course you've got political we're right now we're in the middle of political season uh, even before this political season has uh, really kicked off um, we're already talking about 2024. Um, and uh, governments are really reluctant to sort of pull back, slow the economy down so that it can repay debt in, you know, a hypercharged political environment. And so, if anything, we're seeing more better spending. Um, and um, at some point, Piper's going to get paid. Well, it's definitely a doom and gloom episode. Maybe you should have warned the listeners <laughs> before jumping into this discussion. Um, uh, e- economics has been called a dismal science for, for, for a reason. Um, it, it, yeah, I mean, one has to come to, 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 to grips with the discipline that is required in economics. Um, uh, Milton Friedman famously said that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And boy, does that apply to economics. Definitely. And if you enjoyed this discussion, I highly, highly recommend taking Professor Bastani's International Economy and National Security course in the spring. We discussed many more countries handling or not handling financial crises, and it's a great way to have uh, an in-depth understanding of the international economy. So thank you, Professor, for your time today. Thank you for the plug. (laughs) Thank you for your time. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are the views of the participants alone and do not represent the views or opinions of Georgetown University, the Precision Guided Podcast, or any other agency. Thank you to all our listeners out there. This is a Precision Guided Podcast, the official podcast of the Georgetown Security Studies Review. Please check out the summary of this episode to find out more information about our guests and subscribe to the podcast so that you can be notified of the release of our next episode. 